right. Well, welcome to this NAESP Advocacy Podcast. We are here in Washington, D.C., celebrating our national distinguished principles. And I'm here today with our two guests, uh, Joshua Gill, principal at Ayapun Licknar in Alaska, and Samantha Walder from T Area Legacy Elementary School in South Dakota. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we're here celebrating you and your uh, distinguished accomplishments as an outstanding school leader. Um, but I wanted to give you a moment to talk uh, about your school community and what would listener, what do you want listeners to know about uh, your school and your students and your staff and your families? Excellent. Yeah. Um, well, David, uh, thank you for allowing us to come on and visit for you, visit with you a little bit. Um, I'm from Tiaria Legacy Elementary, one of the fastest growing school districts in South Dakota, and we're actually the youngest school district in the state. We just celebrated our 20th birthday, but um, about five years ago, we were identified as needing some targeted improvement um, at the high school level. So our entire school district really embarked on a continuous school improvement journey, starting all the way down to our junior kindergarten students. And that has really built what we see today in our classrooms, focusing on what we're doing and how we can continue to improve each and every day. That being said, we have about 2,400 students in our district. I've got about 570 students at Legacy and three total elementary schools with an incredibly supportive community. We are currently building a $39 million project to add on to our high school. We've already bought land for our fourth elementary school and we are growing, which with that brings some interesting challenges, but they're ones that we're really excited to do while still evaluating some of those um, improvement science tools that we can utilize to make sure that everybody that's involved, whether it's the community, the teachers, paraprofessionals, cooks, bus drivers, everybody has a say in how we build our school and how we build our community. And I'm very proud of what we're doing. Excellent. Excellent. Um, thank you again, David, for having us on. We do appreciate it. And I think that it, you're going to get some unique views today because uh, I'm from the Lower Cuscum School District and we are 500 air miles due west of Anchorage. You can't drive to us. You can only fly there, boat there. Um, and so we're in very rural. When we talk about rural, we're really in rural Alaska. We, we get around our communities um, by snow machines, boats, small six-seat airplanes, and yes, dog sleds. Um, um, our school district is roughly the size of West Virginia. And we have um, 27 schools across that area. And think about it, not being able to drive to it. I mean, so everything is um, is exorbitant when it comes to prices. Everything needs to be flown in or shipped in. Um, the, I live in the community of Bethel, which is about 6,000 people. Um, we have five schools there. The school that I'm at, Iapun Lignovic, is um, a K-8 immersion school. We just actually expanded to, to eighth grade. Um, and we serve... 98% Alaska Natives out in that area. And uh, the district is um, very unique in the fact that we also have a dual language program in all our schools um, that um, serve our kids in their native language as well as teaching kids English. Um, we are going through a, a pretty unique project. We had our school burn about in 2015 and we're building a new school which is going to come in right around $50 million. I mean, everything needs to be shipped in. We're on 
permafrost, so there's not like a foundation we drill. We have unique challenges, um, not just educating our kids, but also serving our kids in the region we're in. I understand. So in addition to the excellence you bring to your schools as leaders, you also are accomplished advocates and advocates for your school, your colleagues, the profession. Uh, as you've gone on this journey of both excellence and advocacy, could you talk a little better and reflect sort of how, when you first started to realize that you needed to be or should be an advocate and how you first got a start in, in getting involved in these activities? Sure. Um, David, thanks. Um, it's a great question because I think it was more than um, just getting into advocacy, but advocating for um, our, our communities and schools are what really led me to. Um, I have a daughter with Down syndrome, and I, when she was born, um, again, well, being out in rural Alaska, services are very, very unique. Um, and we literally, I, COVID brought in this piece about how, you know, all these virtual doctor's appointments and things. We had started that beforehand because there was no PTJAC or therapist out in our region. So we connected with um, uh, a local therapist, pediatric therapist in Kenai, Alaska, which is roughly probably about, again, another 500 air miles from us. And we, we took advantage of Skype. And that's where when Skype was really coming on big. And um, we were doing, she had, they had taught us baby massage with a doll, a, like a life-size doll and to work with her on this. And I said, if we take one of these and you have a therapist on one side, we can do this with her on the other. So when the pandemic hit, as far as her services, everybody else shut down and scrambled, um, but we were able to continue. But that really brought me to being able to advocate for my daughter. I, there was so many systems uh, available, but we couldn't access because we were in a different economic status than most people. Medicaid in some sense help those other people, but because we didn't qualify for Medicaid, we weren't able to access those pieces. And so it really led me to advocating for my child, and which led me to um, applying for the Alaska Governor's Council on uh, Special Needs and Disabilities. And I sat on that, that uh, governor-appointed council, um, really advocating, and what really, um, as I sat and learned a lot about advocating on this board, it was the people on that board that really taught me so much. Um, there was many people on that board with disabilities and special needs, some even with communications um, disabilities, but them uh, and their ability to portray their stories and taught me how to advocate um, for uh, needs and uh, of these dis disability people so that they could live a life that they wanted to and be able to, uh, to do the things that they wanted to do. And so that was really my footstep into advocate for in different realms, but that was my really first experience. Interesting. Samantha, what's your origin story? Well, um, I would be remiss not to mention it probably starts with sitting around the kitchen table growing up with my dad talking about what was happening mm -hmm. out in D.C. or happening in Pierre. We had a lot of stories about Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton that came through, and that turned into just a love of everything with history and political science. And when I was in college, I got the opportunity to serve as a legislative intern in our state house. I served with the Health and Human Services Committee as well as the House Education Committee, and that helped me to really understand the processes and the procedures 
that are essential to having um, rules of democracy that allow people to advocate. I think one of the things that is important for us in advocacy is making sure that we ourselves understand the rules by which um, for better or worse, that the government plays their game, you know? So we have to make sure that we understand those pieces, and that's kind of where I started. Um, I ended up taking um, an opportunity to volunteer abroad and teach, and education then became my calling. So throughout uh, my time as a teacher, I served on many state committees for both curriculum, and then that transcended into my role in the principalship, where that moved into funding and curriculum. And through some great mentorship from my high school or secondary principal colleagues, I started to join um, the programs that we had with the South Dakota Elementary Principals Association. And that helped me really to learn what we could do to be advocates and making sure that our voices are heard at all levels and that that's part of the game that we have to play and understanding how we can move ourselves forward. So. Yeah, I, we, let's let's keep on that because I think that's a really important point. And again, as as uh, again, principles are being recognized for your excellence. I think that's really an important message you you touched on is is this notion of advocacy as part of your professional responsibilities these days. It, it's it's no longer. You know, I've heard you know teachers just want to go in their classroom, close the door, and teach. They don't want to be bothered with those outside noises. Um, but really, we, we all have to be cognizant about, again, it's public issues, policy issues. So, um, you know, what, as you think about it in terms of a professional responsibility for principals, what would you tell them in terms of being aware and involved uh, with these issues? And, and it can be obviously a lot of different ways and levels at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level. But in terms of um, involvement, I think, is... is you know, what would you tell what would you tell your colleagues in that regard well i think one of the most important things is we all have a story already that we tell ourselves about what school is everybody has to go to school we have compulsory school education laws whether it is you know homeschool or a hybrid school public school i um, mean we don't have them in south dakota but in other states charter schools we have that everybody already has their story about what school is but the school that we went to is not the same school that we have right now today and if we don't don't tell our story, yes. then we are going to fall behind. Um, it's important that we're the ones sharing that story as well. Even teachers or newer principals that might not be comfortable explaining about the things that are happening in their district, even if we can help as leaders in our profession or leaders in our associations to give them ideas and scripts to invite local legislators, invite national legislators, invite your community into your building to walk through your halls so that they can see what we're doing, that they, they know that, you know what, I still we still teach cursive in third grade, okay? We're still working on fundamentals for reading and breaking down words. We're still teaching math facts. We want to make sure that we're the ones telling our school's story. Even if you're not going out to Capitol Hill and trying to advocate for a specific um, situation, Telling your school's story is the very first step in, step in a powerful role as an educator advocate. And, and you know, kind of going off of that, mm -hmm. you know, I think that um, 
all our stories are unique and I think our stories are important. And I think you, you hit it earlier that before in education, your doors were closed, the schools were closed. It wasn't a place that was open and feeling free to go to. And people didn't know what was going on. And I think if you look back at the pandemic and the realization of what educators really did, it, it was essential. And I think that your story and your unique story, and I think telling your unique story is very important because everybody's needs a little different. I mean, we have all general common needs across the nation. Um, teacher shortage, I mean, we could go on for days and days of that right now. And I mean, I know it's, hip, it's really impacting us in rural Alaska, but our unique stories and how we approach um, our communities, I mean, you need to start at the grassroots. You need to advocate in this grassroots with your families. You need to get them in so they can tell their stories and, and you want to be known across, oh, they're doing this at your school and you're doing this at your school. That's when you, you should be able to go out in your community and say, hey, what did you hear about? You know, and those stories, that advocacy needs to start at grassroots so that it does feed to our legislature. It's not just us telling that story. It is everybody in your community telling that story. Josh, you, that's exactly correct. The mm -hmm. best story isn't told by us. The best story is told by the teachers are who are closest to the work or mm -hmm. even taking it one step further and having your students be able to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Because when the students are able to say that I am learning this and this is impacting me because now I know I can, that's what we want to do. We're, we're figuratively packing parachutes for students to jump from planes that haven't even been invented yet. Yes. So it's essential for us to make sure that our students are the ones that are telling the stories that say that we are empowered to move forward and our teachers feel supported and know that we are doing everything we can to make sure they can just teach. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so powerful that tell, tell your story, own the narrative. And I, I think what I heard you say is too, it's, it's, it's advocating in a very broad sense. It's not just the policymakers or decision makers, but it's to the community, to the families. Everyone, everyone's well aware of what's happening in the school, the good things that are happening, mm -hmm. and, uh, and celebrating that. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm going to give you a chance to tell your story here because we are in Washington, D.C., and knock on wood, the federal government is not shut down. It's open, so that's great news. Um, but a big part of, of that debate um, uh, leading up to the shutdown was on federal funding. And uh, one of the big parts of that was education funding. And the House of Representatives has a bill that's proposed an 80% cut to Title I and complete elimination of Title II. Um, Title I is obviously the foundational aid for K-12 schools. And Title II uh, is the sole dedicated source of federal funding for professional development for educators and school leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, tell, let's love to hear your story about what that, a, mag, a cut of that magnitude would mean um, in, for your schools and for your staff, either in Title I or Title II. So, you know, in, in the Lower Custom School District, we roughly have 4,000 students, which are people like, oh, that's a really small district. We may be small in numbers, but our, our size geographically is huge. And for our district, it'd be about a third of our total budget cut if they cut Title I and Title II. And it would be devastating. It really would. We have as as majority of our students as second language learners we use a ton of money in Title I and really um, supporting our students in, in their, their, their task or their quest to read in English. And it's essential for a lot of those 
interventions and things that we provide our students that I don't, you know, we would, you wouldn't talk about creativity when you, if you were to take a third of your salary out and try to pay your bills, it'd be like, whoa. And so, I mean, we have that. And again, the training programs being in rural Alaska, being an indigenous region, the training that we, we, the onboarding we have that is funded through Title II and our principals, it would be, it would really, um, it would change the landscape out there, an already difficult landscape. Um, we're, we are looking at recruiting um, teachers. We have 425 certified teachers and principals in our district. And we currently have 40 openings. And when you figure that out and you sit there and, and that's now with those funds and the recruitment, we have to go clear across the country to recruit staff. And we're not just recruiting from our local colleges. There isn't, our universities aren't producing enough teachers to, um, to provide all the educators needs in our, in our state. So um, it, it, it would be devastating. Um, I think I'd speak first to Title II because um, I am currently not in a school-wide title district. We have two that are targeted assistance within our district, and that would essentially eliminate some of the, the things that we're doing to help support with intervention. You know, when we're basing our funding and placing funds where we know best practices are with the science of reading or the science of math or basic phonics patterns that we need students to, you know, have been exposed to again and again and again repetitively because they have um, either missed instruction or they just need more supports, it, it would be difficult. I think one of the most difficult things about, about Title II funding, though, for us is as one of the fastest growing districts in the state of South Dakota, even if I retain every teacher in my building, I will most likely need to hire two or three teachers next year, which means that if I want to keep the continuity of services provided to my students, then I need to make sure that there's ongoing professional development, not just throughout the school year, but to onboard teachers so that they can rise to the challenge of those high expectations and maintain um, the, the quality of education that our students are receiving. So Title II funds are needed for each district to spend as needed as well, because what you're seeing and what you need, Josh, is not what I'm going to need in my district, mm -hmm. but it would be equally as difficult for us to retain and um, maintain teachers with the kind of supports that they need to be successful. You know, people that are closest to the work of educating our students, the ones that have been focusing on, you know, the, the 25 to 30 students that are in their building or in their classroom every single day, they're the ones that are asking for the ongoing professional development. It is not that it was a state initiative. It is not that it's a district initiative. Our teachers are asking for the latest research to be brought to them in the best way possible. And the only way that we can make sure that every child in the building or in the district has that same level of service provided to them is by making sure that districts have enough Title II funds to provide that ongoing professional development. It shouldn't be a lottery which school district or which classroom your children are placed in just because 
Mrs. Olson had the opportunity to attend a conference, and she's the only one who got to attend the conference, and she's trying to bring back that information, and that's great, but if not every single kindergarten teacher gets the opportunity to learn that same um, mm -hmm. piece of information or that piece of brain research, then we have a problem. And so that's the boots on the ground look of what happens then if Title II funding is cut. You don't get that opportunity to provide the high quality professional development to every single teacher in every single classroom. You know, and kind of going off of just, you know, sometimes when, when you give the broad approach um, to some of the things, you don't really realize the impact. In our district, because we are so unique, we offer 13 days of in-service to our new teachers coming in. Those would be eliminated. We would literally be handing our teachers uh, a key to their classroom and saying, good luck. And you're dealing with a population of indigenous people who are, um, we are the, we are the um, poorest area in Alaska. Um, we have most, I think last time we checked our, our students, about 85% of our kids do not have internet in their house. Um, these are things that, that, you know, most educators out there would make an assumption or that are happening. And, you're coming into this new region, a new language, a new area, and here's the key, good luck. Mm -hmm. And that's not making our students successful. And that's those Title II funds are essential in being able to onboard um, new staff and continue. Um, when you're teaching ELL students, it's a very different, unique. You're teaching a dual language. Um, we're honoring the, the some of the, we're one of the few languages even in Alaska that is still alive and used in schools and um, we're able to support that and it's um, it's essential those title twos are essential in order for us to continue that work well and I think the other thing that we don't think about is the long-term planning that we try to do as districts mm -hmm. we try to plan out what our school district what are what we want our school district to be in five years in ten years and when we don't know if funds are going to be available, that's the struggle because we want to make sure that we have high quality, systematically implemented support for all teachers. And we can't do that if we're kind of, you know, on the teeter-totter every year, whether they're going to continue or not. We just need to know, again, going back to the rules of the game, we can't be successful if we don't know what our parameters are. I would never give an assignment to my high school English students without giving them the rubric first so that they know how success is going to be measured. The same is true with our budgetary processes. If we don't know how much funding is coming in, it's extremely difficult for us to figure out how to make sure that we're providing either the professional development or the other functions of the school that we need to provide at the same time. Those are excellent, excellent points. Um, and I would to add on to that, I mean, it's a, schools, I think, are really facing a triple whammy because to your point about the stability and planning, the house cut includes an immediate rescission of funds. So the cuts would, would take effect this school year. So mm -hmm. you can imagine the havoc that would yeah. face uh, in addition just the general cuts but there's also schools are facing this is the last year of ESSER emergency COVID funding um, that expires at just about this time uh, next fall September 30th um, do you have uh, share a success story about the or the impact the the COVID funding has has had uh, the 
it was it was for mitigating a pandemic, um, mm-hmm. and it seems everyone wants to use it, or everyone thinks it should be used for <laughs> lots of different things. But I know uh, school leaders have put it to good use. Could you just give a, an example and how, how you've used it. I want to start with saying that our money is spent; it's gone; it's already gone at this point in time. And I don't. There's this assumption, you know, understanding education and budgeting is is a really difficult thing. It's very different than a lot of different budgets so when you hear the word encumbered you know it's that means it's spent that's it's there it hasn't been paid to the person but it's been assigned to a task to be completed um you know it was essential uh, i talked a little bit earlier about internet and all of a sudden we sent our kids home and said um you know what you can't come to school but we need to find a way as educators to keep teaching them and we had no way to connect to our students and we started, uh, you know, thank goodness it started in February, March. We started, we started sending home paper packets. And you can imagine how successful that was. Um, it wasn't. Um, it, the kids that had support at home and um, were able to were, you know, you, you saw it. But those kids that the parents were still working and, and they were basically home alone, it, it wasn't successful. And so one some of the funds that we used was connecting internet to the houses it was a very school set it was a very different it wasn't as you think we hooked up fiber there was a lot of shots around school it's very the 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 internet company that came in and a shout out to them they just they were able to be creative in how we were able to connect them to school internet and it, it you you guys think slow internet here it's slow i'm sorry is uh it is um extremely fast um compared to uh um Rural Alaska. Yeah. And so we get 25 megs cap. And when people think about that and you, we talk about teacher shortages and we use it to do remote teaching, we can't put high school teachers in all our small schools. So we bring them in through a video and, and support from on site. And so internet is essential out there, but it is very limited. Um, and so when you, when you talk about ESSER funds, um, the costs out there, I mean, basically, it's already been expensive to live out there because everything is being shipped in. And really, if you look at the price of gas because of, uh, of all these things and the different costs, the inflation costs, inflation has tripled out where we're at compared to here. Um, people bark, uh, you know, about prices. I look at it, I just smile. It's six seventy three a gallon in Bethel. You go to, it's $9 in some of our villages a gallon. And so... You know, when you go out and, and, and you add those to already planned construction costs, we're very fortunate we're getting a new school here. Um, hopefully next fall we're moving in. But there was there was extreme cost increase to a project that just started. And if it weren't for those asset funds, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be having those things. And it wasn't used for people thought I, you know, like, oh, people bought new brand new things that they really didn't need. Really it just kept us going. And, you know, and it kept, um, you know, our kids um, learning. It kept um, our school, needed school projects going. Um, Yep, go ahead. Yeah. Well, in South Dakota, it was a little bit different. Okay. South Dakota, as 
you may have heard, we didn't really shut down the same as the rest of the states. So in South Dakota, we were really only required or highly recommended to shut down for the last quarter of 2020. And we scrambled and worked very hard as an administrative team and worked with our community and local services. And we started school right away in the fall again. We were wearing masks and, and we were headed in. But it meant that we looked at our ESSER funds a little bit differently than others who were needing to work entirely remote all the time. We did have some families that chose to stay home and we helped to support them and we utilized ESSER funds to pay for the teachers to host our online academy that we had, but um, the vast majority of our students were all in our schools. So the best use of our funds to support some of the waning infrastructure that didn't really have adequate heating or cooling systems, ventilation, um, to make a more modern school district with better equipment, better cleaning equipment, those kinds of things that really in a budget get put on the back burner sometimes when we're talking about what is the greatest influence on student achievement. We're focused more on professional development. We're focused more on making sure we have high quality teachers and we're recruiting in them and retaining them at times. So across the state of South Dakota, I can say there were a lot of funds that were put towards some of those infrastructure pieces that were needed, much like what you said, Josh. Um, it was difficult, but due to the lack of um, teachers in our pipeline, even school counselors that could come into a system, and also knowing that we couldn't support and maintain positions when the ESSER funds went away, it was difficult to put them towards hiring additional um, full-time staff. I know that there are some districts that have, and they're not going to have that ability the following year to do so. So yes, money is helpful, and funds are extremely helpful, but I think if you're looking at something systematically, if a one-time support in a system is not the same as an ongoing continued support. So while we are extremely grateful that we had the opportunity to improve our infrastructure, I know that um, long-term it's not going to um, have the same lasting impact. Right. Mm -hmm. Great point. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. You uh, both have attended uh, NAESP's uh, advocacy conference, the School Leaders Advocacy Conference. And as part of that event, there is a full day devoted to going up to Capitol Hill and meeting with your congressional delegations. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about that experience and, and maybe others you've had <clears throat> meeting with elected officials because I found that um, that is the, the big hang-up a lot, a lot of our members, a lot of uh, principals have in terms of the advocacy piece is that whether it's that meeting or that outreach with that elected official or their staff, um, could you talk about your experience with that and uh, any advice you might have for principals that are feeling a little anxious about maybe taking that step in their advocacy activities? I really felt like the opportunity to go up onto Capitol Hill and visit with our representatives and our senators um, was almost like the catalyst of a lot of work that had been done back home. And or it could have been, you know, starting that connection and maintaining a connection. And I'm going to reference back to what we had already visited about, about telling our school's story. Yes, um, 
it, it might be difficult to go into their office and visit with either them or one of their staffers, but then they also see that we are aware of it, we are concerned, we want to make sure that we're establishing connections and leaving our contact information, hopefully, to form a relationship with the people that are working in that office on ongoing. Um, I know that the two senators and the representative that we have, we have one at-large representative in South Dakota, are extremely responsive when we ask questions um, and we invite them into our schools and ask them to come and see what it really looks like to be in an elementary school or a high school. Um, it's not uncommon for all three of them to be at a state basketball tournament or something like that because they're always around and they're, they're looking to try to get in and get more information. So if you're hesitant about reaching out to your legislators, whether it's local legislators or your federal legislators, I would encourage you to just take that first step. And maybe that first step is coming to a Hill Day and getting the opportunity to walk in there with experienced people that can help to support you in those conversations. Um, one of the things that we have found in South Dakota, because we are not quite as rural as you, Josh, but rural, um, we have, there's um, one of my colleagues, West River, we have the Missouri River down the middle of South Dakota, so one of my colleagues, West River, and myself, East River, we actually invite our federal representatives to attend a regional meeting. And and it ends up being an amazing discussion because they're there for a good 45 minutes to an hour. We have a meal with them. We visit with them. They get to know us and our buildings. And that is really powerful and impactful. So coming up and showing them that it's important and we're willing to come out here to Washington, D.C. and um, visit with them on their turf, then we invite them back to ours. And that becomes an ongoing relationship. Just like professional development is really not as useful when it's just one and done, neither is advocacy. You need to get out there and make sure that you're telling your school story yes. and that it is a two-way relationship. Yeah, Samantha, you're smart on and with, with this. And, and I think that if, if I were to add a little bit more to it, it, it is this stands of invite them into your school. <laughs> your local legislators, invite them in. They talk to our um, our federal you know, legislators. They do. They're there. Um, again, they let alone tell your story. Let them see your story. Um, and I think going on, if you are going to do a Hill visit, I know that our local association sets up a state Hill visit as well as um, the national here. A lot of the success in your work is the planning beforehand, making sure those meetings are set up. Um, but just remembering, those people are are that people. They're just people from our communities and they're wanting the best for our states. Now we always don't all agree on how we get to the best for our state, but they want the best for our state. That's why they're there. I'm very fortunate our federal legislators' kids went to my school. Um, she is um, uh, the House Representative Mary Paltola. Um, she's just another lady in town. You, you see her at the grocery store. It's not. They're people. And I think that really helps um, when, when you have a situation like that, see that. And they're, they're just, they want the best for their kids. They want the best for their communities. They want the best for their state. And if you remember that when you're going in, um, you know, they're, they're, they're representing you to do that. And so, um, there are so many things. It's not while well, we sit here and fight for Title One and Title Two, they have to look at the big picture and um, how it's going to impact, um, you know, 
everybody else. And I, I, politics is a, a dog and pony show, I call it. And uh, it's a, it's I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Um, and but it's at the end of the day, the people that are doing it, they're just they're just people from our hometown. They're not, they're they're just good, solid people. I'm, I'm going to actually tell you a little bit about one of our um, our congressional representative, Dusty Johnson, is actually known for hopping into classrooms and subbing like a legit full day of a classroom subbing. So I would challenge anybody mm-hmm. to um, bring that up to their congressman and say, we would love to have you on our sub list. Are you back in the hometown anytime? Yeah. So that's really, you know, putting putting yourself right in there and mm-hmm. taking over a classroom for an entire day and seeing what it's like again um, is one of the things that I think is uh Real commendable for Congressman Johnson. Make sure they eat in the the teachers' lounge. Yeah, you you come and eat. You come and eat, or maybe even lunch duty. Yep, absolutely. Get the real, the real experience. Mm -hmm. All right. um, The uh, I wanted to um, give you an opportunity. So you are both uh, presidents of your respective state affiliates. We talked sort of national issues here, but this is a lot of important state issues and state advocacy. Um, you know, do you want to talk about your the your affiliates and the advocacy structure you have and the and and how you serve your uh, your members and the principals at the at the state level? Sure. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's Alaska is is very small when it comes to number, but very large in size, and the road system in Alaska is uh, very. I would call it a traditional lower forty eight type school, and when you get to Bush, Alaska. Um, the fly-in, the rural sites, is very different. And a lot of Alaska Natives, a lot of different culture. So we have a very uh, unique situation in our state. Um, I think that it is one of the things that I really appreciate in our state is not just the elementary association, but it's the secondary associations, the superintendents, it's the business association. We come together under one umbrella and we advocate for our schools. And I think that is very unique in, within our state. And, but when we go to when we go to the hill, when we go, it's not just the elementary principal association or secondary. It is all of us going at, um, at topics, which is really it, I find makes us more powerful. We're all again, we're all advocating for the same thing. We're all advocating for our kids and our classrooms and our schools, and um, I think that makes it really powerful in our state. And so when we go up there, it's not just uh, individual, it's, and we're recognized for that. And I think that we, we hold a lot of clout um, and when it comes to that as association, especially with our local um, legislators. Um, they're constantly coming to us and asking, saying, hey, um, you know, tell us more about this. Um, now, I would say the needs are very similar across the state. Again, um, teacher recruitment is, um, is is becoming devastating it is no longer just we're able to cover and add a few more kids to classrooms it is really um, impacting our students now Um, in schools i I always said you know you usually you knew a good school because something could be going wrong in the school and the students never knew about it because the teachers were very good at you know keeping those things in the back burner Um, but it's impacting our kids now um, we're no longer competitive in salary. We're, um, our retirement system is uh, deplorable. Um, we're not a social security state, and there's no defined benefit plan. Um, so, I mean, it is uh, it is really difficult right now. Um, as well as, um, I'm not trying to tell you not to come to Alaska, by the way. <laughs> but uh, these are the things that we're working on getting changed, and we will. We will. Um, 
as well as funding. Um, again, we have been, we have been now, I, I think I told you earlier, seven years, David, it's actually eight years this year, we have been flat funded in, um, in our state funding. Um, and if, in the last eight years, there's been a lot that's changed, especially inflation, costs have gone through the roof, um, gas, heating fuel, you name it. It's been really, really difficult and, and schools are starting to struggle. And so um, with those are the things that we're working on. And I think what's nice about our state, um, while all these things, we have all our unique challenges, we all can, these are things that we come together for no matter what organization you're at. Because these are the things that, at the end of the day, impact lines. And again, we talk about the uh, the NEA Alaska is um, is part of that organization. You know, we're all advocating for our kids. Um, in South Dakota, we have a very similar structure, Josh, where it's a secondary, elementary, business officials, superintendents, and um, curriculum directors, special education directors, were under one umbrella group, the school administrators of South Dakota. And that group really does a great job. We just had a couple of weeks ago a president's retreat where we all, as presidents and president-elects of our respective organizations, were able to get together, talk about what is coming up in the year, how we can support and help each other be because it's oftentimes um, a lonely job and you feel like you're very siloed, but it's nice to know that there's other people that you can reach out to when there are questions that arise. One of the other things that I think that is unique in South Dakota is through that umbrella organization, um, we work closely with the school boards association as well, and they host um, in the middle of our legislative session, an opportunity to get together and go through all the bills and kind of provide support and advice for our executive director, who also serves as our lobbyist, to ensure that we're all on the straight and narrow and we're all providing kind of those stories of what's happening in the classroom and how particular legislation would impact the diverse school systems that we have across the state of South Dakota. Um, one of the things that we've done in South Dakota with the Elementary Principals Association is we did choose to kind of resurrect the state editor position within the past year and brought her back. And I'm really excited about what that entails to make sure that we're telling our school stories from across the entirety of the state and having that consistent voice putting out that information. Um, another thing is that, you know, we've all undergone some kind of unique political pressures, whether it is conversations about things that are apparently happening in our school districts or questions about are we still doing things in our districts. For example, we were visiting earlier, I was saying, you know, we still teach cursive handwriting, we still do math facts, we do those kinds of things, um, but we're not teaching about some of the other things that are on um, cable news talk stories. Yep. And unfortunately, that gets pushed into whether it's Board of Educational Standards situations where they're looking at standards that we're teaching within our schools and different um, state legislation. So we have to walk a fine line between over sharing um, the concerns that we have but also letting people know that teachers are doing a good job, yeah. that we are, we are providing them with support, we're providing them with professional development, we're providing them with what they need to just be successful in their classrooms. Um, I, again, would be remiss not to talk about, I, I don't know if anybody had heard 
because it was maybe more of a South Dakota issue. But, you know, we had a real difficult standards adoption process over the past year in South Dakota talking about social studies standards. Um, we had a, a group that brought us standards that um, the Board of Educational Standards did end up approving, although a lot of the feedback that was provided, thousands of pieces of feedback from teachers and community members, overwhelmingly was against them. So we need to start thinking about advocacy not just as something that is a one and done when these things come up. We need to start thinking about advocacy at the state level, especially as what we're doing every single day. It has to do with you know, the newsletters that the teachers are sending out, the newsletters that the, the principals are sending out, and the opportunities to share what we're doing in a positive light because it's really difficult to play defense about something we don't know didn't we don't know if it happened or not and we don't know when it happened. Sure. So I think that it's essential that we continue to focus on um, building our capacity as principals and school leaders to understand the processes and procedures of state and federal government, but also that we tell the story of what's actually happening in the classroom. And I think that local message is essential. And I, I, would, I, would, I would even kick it back to your school boards and saying, what's the message they're sending out? You know, what are, what are their priorities? And I think that um, having, having a knowledge, of, I mean, going back to, you don't have to be um, standing at the front of the line, beating your fist on the table, um, but you need to have that knowledge. And I think we, we started this session with that and that you, you have to understand your needs as your district, needs of your school, and, and the needs of your state. And, and how those all interplay together. Um, and because they don't always necessarily align exactly, but you need to come forward with a common front, a common message so that you can be heard. And I think that's important. I think, you know, if I've learned anything about advocacy in the, the past year, especially at the statewide level, it is that I, I want to make sure that everybody has a voice at the table mm -hmm. and that if we are going to ask for feedback from those that are closest to the work, the teachers, the parents, the students, then we need to listen as school leaders because we don't have all the answers. And I'm finishing, or I'm just starting my ninth year as an elementary school principal. It's been a long time since I've been in the classroom. And even if I'd like to think that I understand all the nuances of a classroom, I don't. And I need to make sure that I lean on the experts that I hire to allow them to do their job the best they can. And so whether it is talking about state standards or talking about a dismissal schedule, we need to make sure that we're asking for feedback only when we're willing to listen. And when we do ask for feedback, use it. Yes. All right. Those are great points. Um, so Samantha and Joshua, I want to thank you for a terrific conversation. And I want to congratulate you again on being National Distinguished Principals. And thank you so much. And good luck and enjoy the week and your deserved honor and all of the accolades that are going to come your way. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. <laughs>